Section 5 of The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories by Joel Chandler Harris. The Troubles of Martin Coy, Part 1. When Mrs. Nicklin, on the day of Colonel Florney's funeral, was informed by her husband that he had seen and spoken to Martin Coy, it is no wonder that she was astonished. Nor is it any wonder that she was ready to entertain and express a suspicion that the man was responsible for the colonel's taking off. For Martin had, innocently and unintentionally, made for himself the most gruesome and mysterious reputation that ever attached itself to the name and character of any other human being in middle Georgia. He was a living ghost, and it was only necessary to mention his name to send children to bed silent and shivering, and to cause negroes to remain indoors. The reason there was no Ku Klux organization in that immediate region was because it was only necessary for one white man to say— to another within hearing of a negro have you heard the noise martin coy has sent word that he'll walk about tonight this was sufficient to keep every negro at home on that particular night on one occasion the evening before a state election the negroes gathered together in large numbers not far from town ready to march in early morning and mass themselves at the polls a happy thought on the part of one of the young politicians of the community caused this plan to miscarry he dressed himself up after the style of the Fantastics, as modern mummers were called in the South just prior to the war, donned a hideous mask and a wig and beard of long white hair, and went to the camping place of the Negroes. "'Who dat?' cried one of their pickets. "'Martin Coy,' replied the young man in a terrible voice, striking a match as though he would see whose challenger was. But the Negro gave him no such opportunity. Uttering one shriek of terror, he turned and fled pursued, as he supposed, by Martin Coy. The shriek, coupled with the name of Martin Coy, was sufficient to stampede the colored citizens. The noise made by their feet as they ran along the firm clay road could be heard from some distance, and it sounded like the wild rush of a drove of cattle. In a word, Martin Coy was a ghost, alive and palpable, and yet as mysterious and unreal as the spooks that figure in fireside tales. No man in all that section had been better known than Martin Coy. For several years before the war he had made himself obnoxious to some and popular with others by running a distillery and keeping a doggery just outside the corporate limits of the town. This still and doggery soon became eyesores to the good citizens of the community. They attracted all the reckless and irresponsible characters in the county. Young men with no fondness for drink went there for the sake of the gaiety of the crowd and were soon drawn into the whirlpool of intemperance. On Saturday nights, especially, the orgies that took place at Coy's stillhouse were something to be remembered by those who lived within earshot. Various efforts were made to remove this blot upon the social order, but Martin Coy had taken sound advice so far as the legality of his business was concerned. Moreover, the attacks made on him in the courts aroused the real obstinacy of his nature, and when the citizens clubbed together and raised enough money to buy out a dozen such distilleries, he laughed at their offer. They had attacked him in the first place, and when they went at him with fair words, they found him with his bristles up, as the saying is. Now, in Georgia, since the days of George Whitefield's campaign against Satan, one of the specialties of the population is the ease and certainty with which it turns out revivalist preachers, 
one for each generation of sinners. Uncle Jimmy Danielly, one of the most celebrated, flourished in the 30s, and Uncle Johnny Knight in the 50s. They were rough and uncouth in their ways, it may be, but they were men of genius, gifted with a power to stir the hearts of their fellows. Many strange stories are told of the result of their appeals to the consciences of their hearers. Camp meeting, when a series of services was held in midsummer in the deep bosom of the green wood, was the special harvest time of these revivalists. They preached day and night, and some very astonishing scenes occurred as the result of their ministrations. Martin Coy never attended a camp meeting nor any other religious service, but it was while one of these meetings was in progress not far away that the good citizens of the community concluded to make him the object of special attention on the part of the preachers. Some of the young men got wind of the plan and made haste to inform Martin that a vigorous attempt would be made to convert him. "'Well,' said Martin, "'I reckon I need something of that kind as bad as the next one, but they'll not pester me.' But on Saturday night, while the young men who favored Martin Coy with their presence and their patronage were in the midst of one of their revels, two or three revivalists, accompanied by a dozen or more of the most substantial citizens of the community, suddenly made their appearance. The young men had prepared for a great time. They had secured the services of Fiddlin' Bill, a one-legged negro, whose lack of limb and knack as a shoemaker had secured him many privileges, and had made all arrangements for what is called a stag dance. But Fiddlin' Bill, perceiving this grave and threatening accession to the crowd, slipped his fiddle into its bag and was slipping away. A word from Uncle Johnny Knight detained him. "'Don't go, William,' said the great revivalist, his face beaming with smiles. "'The fiddle is a vile thing when its strings are tuned to sin. But can't you tune it to play a hymn, William?' The young men slipped away one by one, but Fiddlin' Bill remained, and so did Martin Coy, who was running a doubling of low wines. If you get dry, he remarked to his new guest, you'll find a jug by the water bucket there. With that, he went on attending to his business, chunking up the fire and testing the strength of the run, which was slowly dribbling through the coils of the copper pipe into a cask or half-barrel. We have come, Martin, said Reverend John Knight, to have a little friendly talk with you about your soul. All right, neighbors and friends, responded Martin Coy cheerfully. Fire away. But first we'll have prayer, said the preacher, and they all knelt except Martin Coy. The fact that made Uncle Johnny Knight's prayers more impressive than those of any other person was their conversational tone. He addressed his maker as if the great infinite were standing before him. We know, Lord, that our poor friend Martin Coy has a good heart and a clear understanding. If we know that, Heavenly Father, how much better do you know it? Oh, touch that heart and make that understanding clearer and lift our poor friend out of the depths of his misery. He doesn't know, Lord, how deep his misery is, but show it to him. Make him feel it, brand the knowledge of it on his dead conscience, and bring that conscience to life, all quivering with the despair that leads to repentance. The prayer was long and earnest, and grew more vivid toward the close, but it seemed to have no sort of effect on Martin Coy. Then a hymn was sung. Acting on orders, Fiddlin' Bill, after one or two trials, picked up the tune and carried it along very sweetly, the tones of the violin striking through the male voices with singular effectiveness. "'Purty good, Bill,' remarked Martin Coy, with a grunt of satisfaction. "'I'll give you a big drink for that when the company goes.' "'Thank you, Marster,' said Fiddlin' Bill, enthusiastically. The upshot of it was that the efforts of the revivalists appeared to have no appreciable effect on Martin Coy, until at last one of them, it may have been Reverend Caleb Key, who, when all other tactics had failed, had a way of seizing sinners by the scruff of the neck, metaphorically speaking, 
and shaking them over the bottomless pit, raised his hand and said solemnly, Martin Coy, in the presence of your God and these consecrated brethren, I denounce you for sowing the seeds of crime and sin in this community. Your wicked heart is harder than flint, but it will be broken. The day will come, be it soon or late, when you will hide from the light of the sun, when you will slink about in the darkness, when you will be a dead man, though yet alive. Mark my word, Martin Coy, the God of the widow and orphan will take vengeance on you. These words may not seem very impressive in print, but charged with the emphasis of a sonorous and living voice, and rising and falling with the inflections of an earnestness as strong as passion itself, they proved more effective than all the prayers and preaching. As soon as the words were uttered, Martin Coy turned round and faced the revivalists, but they were already retiring. He advanced a pace or two and raised his hand as though he would attract their attention, but their backs were turned and they were swallowed by the darkness. Then Martin Coy turned and looked at Fiddlin' Bill. They give out some rough texts, he remarked. De show does, said Fiddlin' Bill, who was staring at Martin Coy with wide-open eyes. A little mo and de peacher would a cussed you out. I wish he had a done it with his own hook, suggested Martin Coy with a sigh. Then I could a grabbed him and given him a frailin that would a lasted him till the next time he pestered me. Would you a done it, Marsa Coy? asked Fiddlin' Bill. As certain as guns iron replied Martin Coy. "'Well, sir,' commented the Negro. After that, there was silence for some time. The Negro, narrowly watching Martin Coy, saw that he was in a soberer mood than usual, not that he was ever drunk. It was his boast, indeed, that though he had made thousands of gallons of spirits and had tasted nearly every gallon of it, not a drop had ever gone down his goozle. After a while, Fiddlin' Bill ventured to make another remark. The man show was a rank talker. To this, Martin Coy made no reply. Whereupon, after waiting a reasonable time, Fiddlin' Bill made as if to tune his violin. He had lowered the pitch to suit the solemnity of the hymn tune. But Martin shook his head. No more tunes tonight, Bill. We've had enough music to last us over Sunday. There's a jug there with a tin cup tied to the handle. Take a dram if you want one. Fiddlin' Bill looked at Martin Coy and then at the jug, and then for a wonder he shook his head. No, sir, I speck I done had enough. Dat our man put a bad taste in my mouth. He lingered a little while, looked anxiously at the jug more than once, and then bade Martin Coy good night. The white man leaned back in his split-bottom chair and smoked his pipe, listening intently to the thump, thump, thump of the wooden leg as the negro went along the path. When the sound died away, he turned to the boiler of the still and remarked, Well, well, well. When a nigger fiddler says no to a dram, it's about time for the stars to fall again. In Martin Coy's opinion, another fall of stars, such as he witnessed when a lad of seven, would be the prelude to the final judgment and day of doom. Now, it need hardly be said that Martin Coy did not go out of the distilling business. He kept it up not only because he was a most obstinate and self-willed individual, but because he had no other business to fall back on. He kept it up until the beginning of the war, and succeeded meantime in buying a farm close to town and half a dozen negroes to work it. But when the war began, it opened up a new line of business for young and old, unprofitable as the event proved, but beyond all question new. Along with many others, Martin Coy was drawn into it. He joined the company organized in the little town, the company with which Colonel Florini went to the front, and engaged in the arduous work of perfecting himself in the drill tactics and various maneuvers which are so imposing to average spectators, but which are never really employed when war actually opens its mouth, and begins to drink the blood and crunch the bones of its victims. 
It was while Martin Coy was engaged in these duties that he received a long and an affectionate letter from his brother Harvey Coy, who, following his wife's relatives, had emigrated to Missouri. In this letter, Harvey Coy begged his brother not to enlist in any effort to destroy the Union. He owned slaves himself, he said, and his wife's family was made up of slave owners, and he declared that he had good reason for saying that Mr. Lincoln had no intention of disturbing slavery. Moreover, Harvey said that the Southern leaders knew this as well as he did, nay, better, if such a thing could be, and they were simply trying not to preserve slavery but to destroy the Union. As for himself, he proposed to join the defenders of the government, and he advised his brother to sell out in Georgia, bring his wife to Missouri, and either remain neutral or take sides for the Union. Martin Coy read his brother's letter over very carefully, and then made his wife read it aloud. "'Well, and what do you think of that, Molly?' he inquired. "'Why, I think the brazen fool is trying to insult us,' she exclaimed. "'I allers did hate him,' she added. "'He was as poor as you before he married Carrie Biggers.' And after that, he used to talk about my niggers and my property. I declare, if he hadn't a been your only brother, I believe I'd a spit in his face. I felt like it over and often. And now he wants us to go up there and be Yankees along with him. If you ever meet him in a war, I hope you make it convenient to put a whole plum through him. Martin Coy winced at this. I hope not, he protested. I don't think any more of Harvey's wife than you do, but a woman's a woman the world over, and you can't blame a man for what a woman does. The capers of Harvey's wife didn't prejudice me again Harvey, but when he comes a-preaching this doctrine, me and him can't gee horses. With that, Martin Coy tore his brother's letter into little bits of pieces and set them adrift on the wind with an exclamation of bitter disgust. Time, which carries all human efforts forward to their culmination, carried Martin Coy to the front, and, in the beginning, Providence placed him in West Virginia. The brigade to which his company was attached was stationed at Laurel Hill, and a more desolate place, especially during the winter season, could hardly be found. The snow or the sleet fell for weeks at a time, and even when the sun shone, it simply illuminated and brought into stronger relief the vast and desert loneliness that fell impartially on valley and on mountain. Martin Coy said long afterward that a million men gathered in that region wouldn't have lifted the lonesomeness of the place. It was so lonesome, he declared, that men chopping wood a quarter mile away made you feel like you was in t'other world. And when he was asked which of the other worlds he meant, his reply was, "Everyone would have suited me for a change. But the truth is, Martin Coy looked back on the Laurel Hill experience through a long vista of trouble and keen anguish that colored and warped his vision. In the spring of 61, a brigade or two of Federals heard of the occupation of Laurel Hill by the Confederates, and being on their way southward, concluded to pay the lonely place a visit. They carried out this intention early one morning, and their visit was so unexpected that they were right in the camp before most of the Confederates knew there was a blue coat within 25 miles of the place. It was a surprise, and according to all recognized rules of warfare, should have been a very disastrous one. But American troops have a way of getting over their astonishment, as was abundantly demonstrated on both sides during the war. The Confederates rallied behind the cabins they had built, rallied by twos and tens, and then by companies, and they soon succeeded in giving the enemy a warm good morning. But the position was untenable, so the officers decided, and the Confederates retreated. This retreat, orderly enough in the beginning, soon developed into a movement in which every man was for himself. The troops were not demoralized, for there was no pursuit, but they began to straggle. If the history of that retreat has ever been written, the account has never fallen under the eyes of the present writer. But the stories told by survivors all agree that it was the most horrifying experience they were called on to endure throughout the war, 
and some of them, be it remembered, lay for months in prison, while others suffered from terrible wounds. The demoralization that occurred was probably the best thing that could have happened, for if any considerable body of the retreating troops had remained together, starvation would have been the result. But they scattered about in small companies and squads as they went tramping through this vast wilderness. No doubt a great deal of the country has been opened up by this time, but in 1861 there were miles and miles of forest that had never been explored by white men. The statement may seem hard to believe, because at rare intervals along the eastern fringes of this wilderness rude huts had been built. But a veritable jungle of interminable width, which stretches for hundreds of miles along the tops and sides of a range of mountains, offers no inducement to exploration on the part of those who have even a vague idea of its extent. It was June when the retreat began. In Georgia, the blackberries and other wild fruit are ripe at that season. In that vast and mountainous wilderness, the trees and shrubs, with the exception of the laurel, were just beginning to throw out leaves, and the pale green of the new foliage was but the sickening sign of barrenness to the lost Confederates. Some of the unfortunates were never heard of again, but the squad with which Martin Coy found himself managed to preserve life by feeding on roots and barks, especially the inner bark of the red elm and sassafras. On several occasions they managed to shoot high-flying crows, and once they killed a wild pig and had a most joyous feast. Finally, after roaming about for many dreary days, Martin Coy and his companions came to a stream of running water, the first they had seen. By following this, they not only returned to Big Hominy and Fried Chicken, which are the equivalents of civilization in that region, but fell plump upon an adventure which brought Martin Coy face to face with an event that changed his whole life, and made existence dark for him in a very real sense for many a long day. The stream which they had been following through a narrow and somewhat tortuous gorge suddenly leaped off a precipice so high that some of the water was shattered into a mist which arose from the pool below as vaporous as though it had emanated from a steaming cauldron. There was nothing for the weary and famishing Confederates to do but to retrace their steps a little distance and climb from the gorge the best they could. It was not an easy matter for men so torn by hunger and so burdened with fatigue, but led by Martin Coy, whose dogged energy had been the means of keeping up the spirits of his companions, they crawled out and proceeded in a direction parallel with the stream. They had not gone far before they found themselves gazing upon a scene which, after their terrible experience, seemed a foretaste and first glimpse of paradise. It was as if the vast wilderness had rolled away behind them, or as if a black veil had been lifted. In the valley below them a farm lay nestling in the sunshine, a small flock of sheep browsed busily in a field near the barn, and a number of cattle stood contentedly chewing their cuds. Fowls were running about, a small dog barked intermittently, and blue smoke curled from the chimney of the dwelling. The Confederates gazed on this scene of beauty in joyous silence until one of them, a man from Putnam County, Georgia, true to his raisin and his first principles, exclaimed, "'Boys, I smell hog meat a-fryin'.' "'No,' said Martin Coy, after a sniff in the air." It's chicken of frying. Then today's Sunday, was Putnam's comment. Whereupon Coy drew from his pocket a dirty envelope, counted the marks upon it, and after a brief calculation asserted that the day was Sunday. He had kept tale of the number of times he had wound his watch, so that every mark stood for twenty-four hours. The farmhouse seemed to be close at hand. One of the party said it looked like a man might back up the hill a piece, get a good run and start, and jump right sprang into the garden. Nevertheless, they had to walk nearly a mile and a half before the house was reached, and when they arrived there they marched right into the arms of a squad of Federal troopers. They had been warned of the troopers by a man who appeared to be one of the hands, who was hitching a small mule to a wagon, but as you may toll a pig into a butcher's shop with one ear of corn, 
So, on the same principle, these famished and weary confederates determined to risk everything in order to satisfy their hunger. If there had been a man among them of the dash and energy of Forrest, they could have easily captured the Federals, for there was a momentary stampede among the latter, who were lounging about without their arms, and when they saw this grim and determined-looking little band filing into the yard. But the Confederates were clean forespent, in spite of the warning cry of halt, they came shuffling toward the house, some of them staggering by reason of the reaction that had set in. The officer in charge of the Federals took in the situation at a glance, and so did the motherly-looking housewife, and it was not long before they were seated around a bowl of steaming chicken broth, in which wheaten dumplings had been stewed. Simple as this was, it was more than a feast, and it restored hope and energy and gave them strength and courage. The truth is, while they had been weak from hunger, their chief trouble had come from the fact that they were lost in a wilderness that seemed endless. The interminable jungle had racked their nerves and sapped their vitality far more completely than hunger and fatigue, and when they were once free from that incubus and had satisfied their hunger, they found themselves in a pretty good condition. Now Martin Coy's terrible experience in this mountain jungle was made more terrible still by reason of his keen and vivid remembrance of the awful prophecy of the revivalists who, with other preachers, had visited his still house. From the moment that he realized the plight of himself and his companions, the words came back to him with piercing power. The day will come, be it soon or late, when you will hide from the light of the sun, when you will slink about in the darkness, when you will be a dead man, though yet alive. They came back to him and stayed with him. He mumbled them over to himself by day, and they became living things in his dreams and flitted to and fro in his slumbers by night. And now, when he came to realize that he was a prisoner, and that in all probability he would be immured for months, even years, the words of the preacher gathered fresh force. Owing to the physical condition of the Confederates, which, as has been hinted, was not nearly so bad as it seemed to be, their captors determined to remain at the farmhouse overnight. The prisoners were placed in the loft of the barn, which is half filled with hay, and here they found no difficulty in addressing themselves to slumber. Sometime during the night, or it may have been toward morning, Martin Coy felt himself roughly shaken. He would have started up with an exclamation, but a hand over his mouth pressed him back with a force that was irresistible, and an angry whisper sounded close to his ear. Don't speak, but listen. You're all a pack of cowardly whelps, or the Yanks would be where you are. Do you hear me? The hand was still over Martin Coy's mouth, and he could only nod an affirmative. None of you is worth the powder and lead it'd take to blow your heads off, but I'm going to give you a chance to show what's in you tomorrow morning. Are you listening? Again, Martin Coy nodded. Well, when you get about five miles on the way, you'll see a man, a mule, and a wagon in the road. The mule will be unhitched. When your crowd comes along, she'll back right into it and begin to kick, do you hear? Pass the word to your men and tell them to keep their eyes open, and when the mule cuts her caper, let each man grab a yank and take his gun away from him. You are six to eight, and the mule will take care of the two extra men. Is it a go? Martin Coy nodded emphatically. It better be a go, said the whisper. The man that flunks will never see daylight any more. What is your name? The hand was cautiously raised, and back came the answer, Martin Coy. Well, said the other, don't be coy in the morning. When you hear your name called out, grab the gun of the man next to you and kill him, and tell your men to do the same. Good night. Martin Coy felt the straw move once, as if someone was turning over to find a more comfortable position. After that there was silence, except for the squeak of a mouse or the fluttering scamper of a rat along the rafters. He was awake at dawn. 
He heard someone quarreling with a mule in the same tone and language he would use with a person. It's a mighty good thing I come out here when I did. If I'd a waited till sun up, you'd a chewed up the whole inside of the barn. You wait till I get you where nobody can't see us. I'll cut me a stick and I'll pay you for the old and new. Thus said the man to the mule. When Martin Coy looked about him, he saw no one but his companions in misery, and when he would have told these of the information he had received, the first one he spoke to remarked sulkily, Why, you told us that last night. You'll keep on blabbing about it until everyone in the neighborhood knows it. Blabbing? Whatever faults and weaknesses Martin Coy had, blabbing was not among them. The charge stung him so that he withdrew into his shell and had nothing more to say to his companions on any subject whatever. End of section 5